Welcome to the St. Emlyn's podcast. I'm Ian Beardsall. And I'm Simon Carley. And you join us on St. Patrick's Day, March the 17th. I'm not sure what sort of St. Patrick's Day the Irish across the world are having. Uh, Their pubs are shut. Things are changing. Coronavirus is everywhere. And undoubtedly, that will dominate our conversation today. But I have to be honest, Simon, I'm feeling relatively laid back about this whole thing. Well, I think you might be in a bit of a minority there, Ian. I think I'm 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 going to be the, the cup half empty person today. I think I, I'm really quite concerned about it, but uh, partly because there's so many unknowns. Well, let's tell you what, that's a good place to start, isn't it? So why am I cheery and why are you sad? Or not sad so much as worried. I guess I'm just trying to keep a bit of a positive outlook and a bit of perspective on the number of cases we're talking about. And also in the back of my mind, I'm really worried that we forget about all those other patients who are coming to the department. And we just need to make sure that those guys are getting looked after just as much as we're concentrating on the COVID-19s. I think that's a fair point. And we've certainly seen many departments and we've done it almost, we've certainly done it in peds, just doing it in adults today, is split our departments into respiratory areas and non-respiratory areas. And that's great. I think it's absolutely the right thing to do. Please do it and do it now. But it does mean that everything which comes in as respiratory or pseudo-respiratory is labelled as COVID-19. And of course, not all of those patients will be. And I think we've got to be really careful that we don't miss the heart failures. We don't miss the asthma. We don't miss the pneumothorax. We don't miss the the community-acquired pneumonia and just presume that it's COVID-19. So I think this is a stage where we're going to have to be really reliant on clinical acumen um, good observation, good examination, and taking a history. I mean, that's something you've always said, Ian. You always said, you know, history and examination is going to be the pivot of everything we do, and no time more than now. Simon, you're entirely right. It is about history and examination. And we have to be careful that we have the best knowledge for the day. So today, 17th of March, there's stuff coming out all the time. It's so hard to stay up to date with it. And I think my tactic is now to just follow what my trust leadership are telling me to do at my hospital. Twitter, it seems to me, has so many different opinions, so many different rights and wrongs. There are WhatsApp groups popping up everywhere. This is the time where we have to trust our leaders, I think, and be good followers. So I will go to work. I will do the things that are told of me. I will trust the people who are telling me because I honestly believe that our chief medical officer, chief scientific advisor, I have to believe that they know better than me what they're doing. So I'm going to go to work and do my best. Now, you're entirely right in that the ones who actually worry me is one diagnosis you didn't mention, and that's the pulmonary embolus patient. So I've seen a good couple of young people with shortness of breath, bit of a temperature maybe, and they've come in as a query coronavirus and they've seemed okay and they're not hypoxic particularly, and we've been encouraged to send them home. And I just wonder whether when the shakedown of all this comes in a year or two years, whether we look back and work out, do you know what? Much of the harm we did during this whole thing or much of the harm that occurred was to the people who didn't have COVID-19. And it's all the rest of the people who seemingly perhaps just got sidelined while we were distracted. I think that's a possibility. But on the cup half empty side, again, I think that... I think we're just going to have to accept that the standard of care in general is probably not going to be as good as it normally is. I think errors will be made. And of course, there's wider issues as well, which I don't want to get into today, but things like um, urgent surgeries being cancelled and and certainly elective surgeries being cancelled. And there will be outcomes from that as well. So the, the global health picture is not going to be around just COVID-19. It's going to affect lots and lots of other areas as well. 
I think we have a role to play in the emergency department there. I think we have to be vigilant and do our very best. I think your issue about the, the PEs thing is, is quite interesting because one of our strategies, of course, is to keep as many of these people in the community for as long as possible. So the assessments that we're going to have to make, oh, history and examination, guys, you know, it's not every breathless person who turns up in the next two, three, four, five, six months is going to have COVID-19. They're going to have other things as well. But we will also see a lot of COVID-19 patients. If you look at the podcast we did with uh, Roberto um, in Italy, they're still seeing 70, 80 serious pneumonias a day. And they have like nearly 100 patients in the department requiring oxygen, intubation or or non-invasive ventilation. So under those levels of, of risk and under those levels of demand, we are going to have a really tough summer. So I, I'm, I'm quite worried. I, I think there are some positives out there i think you know from a team perspective and you know this is what we trained for and i i love a challenge you know emergency physicians nurses paramedics you know we are the marines of the of the nhs you know throws into battle and we're good but i think it is going to be tough really tough at times and perhaps that's why as an emergency physician we come at it as different angle i mean we've had tough this is a different version of tough i admit it but we have kind of forgotten that we can cope with most stuff that's thrown at us. And this is where we as emergency doctors can be leaders. We're used to dealing with uncertainty. We're used to dealing with being overwhelmed. And as especially seniors, we should be there to just try and calm the situation down, make sure that we keep a level head. Again, cup half full. A lot of people who come into a short breath with a bit of a cough and maybe even a temperature likely have a virus that isn't COVID-19. But we just keep that in our back of our mind and just remind our staff that actually almost all of them are safe. Those with predisposing illness, the older members of staff that, OK, we have to think about them. But for the majority of our staff, even if they were to get this illness, they will get through it and they will survive it. And I think just getting a little handle on that is important as well, because there is a lot of fear out there. I think you're right. I mean, a lot of people are very scared at the moment and we're doing daily education sessions in our department. So we're spending a day doing a combination of simulation, process simulation and Q&As. And I think not unreasonably, people are very worried about it from a personal point of view and also from their families, particularly if they have elderly relatives who may have some of these coexisting um, conditions and people are, are, are sort of pseudo self-isolating on the basis of that or separating themselves from their families. But we're, we're giving a similar message. I think it is likely that we will see uh, young people come through. We're already seeing them, um, to be honest, and some of them will be very unwell. But the vast, vast majority of those will survive, even if they end up on ITU. And that is a message that we're, we're telling people. And we're having that conversation now. And I do think that's important that we talk to people now about what's likely to happen in a few weeks and that people can have those conversations and they can have an understanding so that when it does happen, we have a level of mutual support. If you look at our demographic of, you know, doctors and nurses, and, I, and when you say clinical leaders as, as doctors, I absolutely have to have the managers and the the nursing staff and everybody else, and you know, people like the cleaning staff who are absolutely incredibly important here for our response. Everybody's, you know, got to do their bit. But I think we will have people on our teams who get sick, and some of them may not make it. I'll be absolutely frank, and that's going to be really tough, you know, and. Um, you know, it's a big picture and I hope it doesn't happen to me. I hope it doesn't happen to you or anybody that we know, but potentially we are going to have friends and colleagues on ITU or worse. So again, I'm just going to be the cup half full pragmatic guy to say, of course, there is a risk that our colleagues may get poorly, but we have a risk every day. 
we put ourselves at risk all the time every time we get in a car or the number of colleagues I have who ride a motorbike or any of the other activities that we do. And in our job, we see young people get poorly all the time. I've had one colleague die in the last six months at a young age because he got cancer and it was grossly unfair and I still don't understand it. And this is part of what life is. I'm not saying that an epidemic of a virus is what life is, but let's just remember that things do happen all the time. We just have to support each other through it. If we're scared of this, we should be scared of life. And I don't think that's where we should be. We have a good healthcare system. We know how to look after patients with this problem. We are aware of it. We're throwing everything at it. I tell you what, if we threw this much attention at, I don't know, controversially, let's say gun control in America or sepsis or public health, then we would be doing really well for lots of other illnesses too. So actually, I'm going to be more positive than you are about that and hope that the majority, the vast majority of people will get through if they get infected with COVID-19. Yeah, we'll have to see how the public health measures go and and the the idea of flattening the curve so that we don't get overwhelmed. I think that's the problem, the worry. Now, on the the curves thing, I've I've had an idea, see if this sort of makes sense to you, is all the talk in the press and from the government is about flattening the curve from a public health point of view and from the general public's perspective. But we've been talking about two curves. There's the general public curve, and that has to flatten to keep the NHS under control and to keep make sure that we don't uh, overreach capacity, particularly around ICU and um, ventilated beds. And I think I think that's that is a good argument, and that, that that is largely where my worry is. But there's also the curve for healthcare staff as well, because what we can't have is all the healthcare workers going off sick at the same time. And that's why we're really, really pushing hard on PPE and washing your hands and simple, 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 simple stuff to avoid the contamination of healthcare workers and the cross-contamination of healthcare workers. Because if all our departments, say we lose 50% of our department with sickness at the same time, we can't cope with that. So we have to flatten the curve for healthcare workers, infections in particular, as well as the wider public. Couldn't agree more. Of course we do. And we have to make sure we are available. And this does come down a bit to how we look after ourselves and what we do. We've got to set an example. The hand washing is key. There's a lot on Twitter at the moment about what I'm supposed to do with my clothes when I get home from work. I'm not sure, but it sounds like I'm supposed to incinerate everything I've worn and then, I don't know, bathe in bleach. But I think something slightly less than that, but just being aware that washing your hands, making sure services are keeping your house clean, all that stuff is really important. And We then need to think about, and I think it's going to happen, what happens for healthcare workers who feel a bit viral? Because in the old days, if I felt a bit viral, I headed into work because it's just a bit of a cold. And there will still be people with colds. And I know that as we can ramp up testing, we're going to ramp up the testing in healthcare workers too, because actually having some of us off for 14 days because somebody in our house has got a cold may not be sustainable for the environment. But actually, do you know what? People will be listening to this by the 20th of March and everything could have changed. But as of today, well, let's see what's going on for healthcare workers and how we do that. I think 20th of March is a little bit ambitious, Ian. Uh, My understanding is there will be guidance issued this afternoon. We're we're out of date already. That's the problem. (laughs) And it's true, isn't it? I mean, it is really difficult to to keep up. Can Can I suggest something, an area where we might compromise and might agree between our cups of half full or half empty? Of course. Or perhaps the wrong sized cup is... There's a phrase, which is one of the philosophies of St. Emblins, if you remember, which is E plus R equals O. 
And just to explain that, E E is the event and O is the outcome. So E in this case is the pandemic, the virus, the coronavirus. There's nothing we can do about that, really. It has happened. We can't make it go away. It can't not happen. It's out there. It's going to do stuff. How bad it's going to be, we don't know quite yet. Now, the outcome for you, for me, and for our friends and families in terms of how do we cope with that is largely based on a combination of the event, can't do anything about it, and how we react to it, how we feel about it, how we support ourselves, how we support each other, how we maintain our mental and physical health as we go through this. So I think it is one of those times in life where we have to sort of stop and think, I can't change that, but I can think hard about how I react to it and how I work with my colleagues and my friends and my family to get us to the other side, because that's the outcome that matters. And one of those things that's come up on a discussion on Twitter about what people are scared of is this idea of not being able to help. The sort of version of moral injury, I suppose. And I, th- this takes me back to, gosh, that Ma- the Manchester bombing, which you guys up there had a first-hand experience of. And I remember one of us and Emily's colleagues saying that they felt bad on the night because they'd had a few drinks and couldn't go into work to help. And they felt really bad about that. And I think at the moment, there are people who are worried that if they're self-isolating or if they get the virus, they won't be able to help. My message, I think, about that is you can't let that worry you. I think if it was a one-off, one evening, like the Manchester thing, you might think, oh, if only I'd been there. If only This is not a one-off. This will be over days. And it's important for you to look after yourself mentally and physically. So if it's the right thing to not be at work, it is the right thing to not be at work. And you can't feel guilty about that. And even more than that, you can't force yourself to go to work and say, oh, I'm, no, I haven't got a cough, really. Or do you know what? My temperature is 37.5. It's, it's absolutely fine. We've got to follow the guidance. The rest of your colleagues will be able to do it without you. They will cope. And when you're better, you'll go back and you'll be able to help them too. But the feeling of guilt, I think we've just got to try to put to one side, haven't we? We do. And I think we're also in this for the marathon. It's, it's not going to be days. It's going to be months. And keeping ourselves healthy over that period of time is going to be a challenge. It does mean that we have to, I mean, we're looking at rewriting all of our rotors, to be honest, um, to make sure that we've got two things. One, we've got a better capacity. And secondly, to make sure that we've got some resilience within those rotors in case people go off sick. So we can't go down to, you know, single person uh, events. So we've got to have a completely different way of doing it. But within that, we have to build in downtime. And we have to build time because the experience from Italy would suggest that people are going to find this very hard. They're going to be making decisions which they find very difficult from an ethical or moral point of view. And they're going to see a greater number of people who are suffering severe illness without any apparent cause. So we can understand accidents to some extent because they can happen and people ride motorbikes, as you said. But large numbers of people who are suffering from this acute disease um, and potentially becoming very unwell in the elderly particularly that's going to be tough on people and i think building time out is going to be difficult uh, sorry is going to be essential but during that time we were talking before the the podcast started about our concern about the the idea of social distancing and we don't i don't think that's right i mean i think we need physical distancing so separating yourself from likely places to catch it but we, we actually need more social we need to shorten the social distances for um, survival and support. So you may not be able to physically get together, but we have you know fabulous electronic means to keep in touch with people. Phones even work, honestly, folks. You know landlines and stuff. So we need to. So I think we need to socially reduce the distance, but physically increase it. 
we will all find our different coping strategy, I'm sure. And we just had our non-clinical time told that we're going to be spending it either covering the shop floor or away from the hospital. And with that non-clinical time, I want to use it to try and make sure all my COVID stuff is up to date. I'm going to try and think about education, how we can supply more education. I'm hoping that we'll keep some podcasts going. We've got to keep life going behind all of this. We've got to keep remembering that there's those other patients that we have a duty of care to as well, but also trying to keep myself physically fit. We know that we will cope better with the stress. We probably will also have a better chance of fighting off a virus if we're physically fit as well. There's some evidence for that for the common cold. And there's nothing to say that if you are self-isolating or you can't go out for a walk in the fresh air, you're more than two meters away from anyone. Being outside is probably the safest place to be, frankly. Get yourself out in nature, go for a walk, take your family, go for a run, whatever it is you like to do. And don't feel guilty again if that non-clinical time is used for you to make sure you're on your best form when you get to work. Because they're gonna need people are gonna have to put a smile on when they get to work. If you get to work and you're tired and you're stressed and you're not at your best, then that is perhaps the worst thing we can do is to turn up to work unprepared. So use your non-clinical time, use your other time to get yourself in that frame of mind where you can go, you give eight hours, ten hours of the best of you, then you go home and you Watch a box set. You get out in nature. You do whatever you can. Play catch in the garden with your children who are, you know, not self-isolating and otherwise well. Whatever it might be. But don't feel guilty if you're not working the whole time. Because when you're at work, you're going to be working pretty hard. I think you're right. And I think I think we will probably be, certainly at senior level, I think we're going to struggle to keep within our hours. I think it's going to be a, t- it's going to be a tough gig, Ian. I know you're being positive, but I think it's going to be a tough gig. I'm, we, I'm sure you're right. It is good. And I, I'm not making light of it. And I joke about setting fire to my clothes or whatever else. And I know this is serious. I know this is a big deal. But there is a bit of me that thinks the more positive we can approach this as leaders, if you like, as people who set the tone on the shop floor, we talk about civility saves. We talk about the toxic uh, emotional contagion. We talk about all those things. If we can go onto the shop floor, whatever level you might be, don't forget, the way we react has a big effect on our domestic staff, on our receptionists, on all of the people who are around us, that we can supply that reassurance and just a feeling of we're in this together. Because I have no doubt that this too will pass. There will be many, many, many things we can learn from it. We will get through it. There will be, as you've said, some people who die. There will. But the vast majority will get better. We will learn things. And Dare I say it, I just wonder that as a society and as a healthcare system, we may even find lessons that we can learn that will improve where we are when we come out of all this. Well, we're all on the same journey and I guess we're going to find out. And so I think it's going to be really interesting. Ian. I think we're going to see the best of people and we really are going to see people step up and we are going to see some fantastic things over the next few months. Occasionally, I think we'll see the worst of people. And quite frankly, if I find who's been nicking stuff from the department, you're not, I'm not a happy person about that. We've had people, you know, members of the public come in and steal things like hand sanitizer and stuff. You know, that's not on. That's not on. I want to see the best of people. I don't want to see any of that. Do you know what I'm going to suggest we do now, Simon? You're going to think me Go crazy. Would you to do a February update from stuff on the blog? Why don't yeah. we just whiz through a bit of normal medicine? To remind yeah, ourselves yeah, yeah. that there is normal medicine out there beyond COVID. Would you be up for that? Yes, because I think it, it it speaks to the principle that it's not business as usual, 
but there will be usual business. I like that. I like, you should get a T-shirt. That's I like that very much. I should actually. It'd That's be good, very good. It? So listen. Wait, right, so where do you want to start? Well, let's start with February the 1st, Christopher Gray, uh, Journal Club about DKA and a new PEDS DKA guideline. I feel for the PEDS di- uh, diabetologist actually, because this is a big deal and it's going to get lost in the new cycle. So we should, <laughs> should make sure we talk about it. There's not many of those clinicians and they, they need their moment. Um, what did you take away from this? Um, I think I took away the fact that they've um, they've got a, a better definitions of, of the levels of DKA around diagnostic criteria. So requiring low bicarbs, less than 15 mils, and then changing the, the severity levels based on both the bicarb and the pH. So for instance, a severe DKA now is a pH of 7.1 or a bicarb of less than five. So that's a little bit different. Um, so a little bit of a change from the previous, which was at 7.1 was classified, more than 7.1 pH was classified as mild or moderate. So there's three levels now. Um, a little bit more on pretty obvious stuff, really, which is, you know, if you've got a new onset DKA, speak to a consultant pediatrician. I'm not sure we had to say that, but it is kind of important. And then I think there's been a slight change in the fluids. So there is now the idea that we can certainly give boluses of fluid to children who are in shock. I don't actually see that many kids who come in DKA and are actually shocked on presentation. And then the, the thing about DKA and, and fluids is the one that really gets people sort of really gets people going so all non-shocked patients with dk get a 10 mil per kilo bolus over 60 minutes and that's a big change for some regimes where they've been very restrictive of fluids in the early stages because they thought it caused cerebral edema and now we know from big rcts that it really doesn't make a huge amount of difference there's some also some stuff in there around um, overweight and obese children how we alter it for them and that's really important isn't it because we're seeing more of them yeah, I mean, just some other sort of subtle things. There's an interesting one about adolescence because we're quite interested in adolescent medicine where we are. And that that peculiar thing that happens when a child becomes 16, they suddenly, on the day of their birthday, go on to a completely different guideline, which I've never really understood in somebody who works in both peds and adults. And what they're saying is that in that age group, the 16 to 17-year-olds, the patients should be treated according to the guidelines for the teams which they are normally under, which I think is even less clear <laughs> to me. But... Yes. That's what they've said. Another couple of other tips in there. But if you manage DKA, have a look at that. And also have a really good look at Danny Hall's post on Don't Forget the Bubbles, which goes into it in even more detail. Really, really good. My personal approach to DKA in peas is I don't see it all the time. I'll always get the guidelines out. I'll always get help. And often they're the best written guidelines you have in the department, aren't they? And it's always my favourite for talking to medical students or others about the difference between dehydration and shock. I think that's a nice learning point. And DKA... If you've got diabetes, you don't want DK, and I'm not saying that's a lovely, but physiologically, I find it a very satisfying disease to talk about. And you can really see the effects of your treatment and imagine what's happening in those cells. And I'm about to get excited about salts going into, let's, let's move on to pneumothoraces before I get overwhelmed by, I really am cup half full, aren't I? I'm excited about everything. So yes, yeah, I'm not entirely sure why, but crack on. It's exhausting. The next one was a post from you about conservative management of pneumothoraces, pneumothoraxes, depending on uh, how you want to call them. And this is about how we can leave some pneumothoraces and not have to stick stuff in them. Yeah, so a randomised controlled trial from uh, Down Under, from uh, the sort of Australasian group. And this was a study where they took patients 14 to 50 years of age with a first unilateral 
moderate or large spontaneous pneumothorax. So these are actually pretty big pneumothoraces, the ones that we would normally probably drain, certainly aspirate and possibly drain. The Americans are much keener on draining than aspirating. But anyway, you do something to them. And they randomized them into either conservative management, so long as they weren't, you know, super sick and like really breathless. Um, just watch them. And then they drained the others. A little bit of peculiar about how they drained them. So sometimes they were, the drains weren't in very long, which was one of my criticisms. But for their argument, they, they put the drains in, got the lung back up, and then they followed them up for a long period of time. I think it was about six weeks, eight weeks. And they found that essentially they, they didn't really find much of a difference between the two outcomes. So if you did nothing, they pretty much stayed the same. And you still got the same outcome at eight weeks. So they're really questioning whether or not you want to put a drain into these patients at all, which I thought is really contrary to everything that we've ever heard before. I'm a big fan of doing nothing. I, I like it a lot. But it seems to me that in medicine these days, it's much harder to do to an educated nothing than it is to do an un- uneducated something. So we seem to get in more trouble if we choose to take a more conservative path. Everyone wants to do something, whether that's a CT scan or an ultrasound or blood test. It's much easier to do something than it is to choose not to. And this might be one of those times where actually choosing not to could be a good thing. We'll see. More. Yeah, I was, a, I was a little bit sceptical about this paper when I first saw it because I felt there's, there's problems with follow up. It took them a long time to get this number of patients in, was it 29 or 39 centres? It, 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 there were some elements which I was a little bit unsure about, but um, they've come back to me. They were, they were a bit cross about the original one, but um, not cross, but they sort of questioned our, our sort of thoughts. And they've done some further work. So Gerben Kirchers, if I pronounced that correctly, They've, they've actually audited since they did this and follow up. And the findings in that audit, which hopefully they will formally publish, suggest that it probably is as safe as they suggest. So just on the paper, I was a little bit sceptical. But if more evidence comes in and if there is truly this longitudinal audit that shows it's OK, then it probably will. I think it probably will end up changing practice. The next post was, well, this just shows how fast we've moved, doesn't it? This was a, an update about the CODA program. CODA being the new version of SMAC that was going to be on in September in Melbourne. And of course, now, along with seemingly everything, is postponed. So I think we can probably skip over that and get really excited about that again next year when it is rescheduled, along with all the other major events that have had to be put off, including, very sadly for me, Bad EM. And my thoughts do go out to all of those conference organisers because I'm well aware that they've not just put time into these things, but for some of them, this is a huge economic hit as well as a psychological blow that they've had to postpone their conferences. And to those of you who've had to do that, if there's anything our St. Emily's team can do to help you, please do let us know. We respect so much the work you put in and to have this happen to you, along with all the stuff that's happened to everyone else, it's just, well, just very difficult, isn't it? Uh, you, you also forgot to mention that we cancelled St. Emlyn's Live as well. Oh, there was St. Emlyn's Live. And that, of course, will also be rescheduled for another time in the future. Um, and, yeah. and that, of course, is right up there with the major medical conferences of the world. <laughs> it was going to be so good. We had loads of bookings, actually. It was going to look, it was going to look great. We we're going to do some fantastic things. But no, the world has changed but, and it's not happening. So, you know, that's just the way it is. And finally, for February... Somewhat fittingly, to we started on COVID, as obviously life is dominated by. We're going to end on talking about sim training. Although perhaps we're now on the 17th of March. This was published on the 28th of February. If you've not done this already, you're a bit behind the curve. Get reading this post. Get simming. You're a big fan of sim, aren't you, Simon? I am. But I think for this particular issue, 
we're doing our simulations in a much broader way than just having a mannequin and pretending to go through the motions of this is what we do and this is what we do. Because actually, the medicine in coronavirus is pretty much the same. So airway, breathing, circulation, you know, all the things that you've said in, in, in the past about, you know, what are we trying to achieve in the emergency department? The difference is how we do it. How does the geography change? What about PPE? So the sims that we're doing is the live sims that we do are often a walkthrough, talk through. So lots of points to stop and ask questions. And then we get to a procedure element. We'll run with that procedure and then we'll do a debrief after the little procedure and then move on to the next stage. So for instance, you might you know, real sim and intubation in PPE, but then stop, ask all the questions about that, go on to the next bit, and then we'll talk about how we transfer the patient. But the pukes idea, which is practical exercise without casualties, comes from the MIMS courses, the HIMMS courses. And basically what it means is this is where you just get a small number of people and you walk into a space, you look at the geography and say, okay, if we had a patient with this, or we had several patients who arrive at once, what would we do? Where would we put them? What would the problems be? What would have to move? How would that work? And then when we solve that problem, say, okay, so the patients are now in this places and this is what's happening. What's our next challenge? How are we going to do this next bit? Where are we going to get the extra drugs from? Where's the extra ventilators going to come from? How are we going to get these patients out? All of that kind of thing. So it's still a practical exercise. It's still simulation because you're simulating an idea, but you're using the world's best simulator, as Cliff Reed always says, which is your own brain or the brains of all the people in the room. And you simulate, okay, what if, what if I'll do this? Okay, if I do that, then what? And it's a really, really effective way of getting lots and lots of simulations done because you need no kit. You just need the people, the geography, and your brain. I can do the first two. The last is often lacking, as people know. Simon, it's been lovely to chat. Now, the world, I'm sure, will change by the next time we talk, but perhaps we will speak sooner. It's a time when we want to communicate with people, and podcasting is a great way to do that. And hopefully, well, next time we talk, maybe we'll be more used to this, or maybe it'll even be decreasing. Who knows? But I'm optimistic that our colleagues are out the country. And if you're non-medical and listening to this, I mean, firstly, why not? You've obviously clicked on the wrong thing go and listen to Kermode and Mayo's film review but once you've found us be reassured the NHS knows what it's doing they're going to be okay people look after yourselves and we will be there throughout this and on the other side so take care I agree with Ian I, I'm still a little bit cup, cup half empty but I'm, I'm happy to accept that maybe just the cup is the wrong size and we haven't really quite decided which way it is yet well, but good luck. Good luck. Well, good luck, everyone. And, and, and we won't finish by mentioning the size of your cup, but take care. Bye. Bye.